Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology. This podcast is for data enthusiasts, data scientists, and data science leaders to learn the skills required to take your career to the next level. To learn these skills, we hear directly from top industry leaders and executives working out there today in many different industries. I am your host. My name is Felipe Flores. And today we will be hearing a presentation that I did at a large car company, a large car manufacturer, where they asked me to go and present an introduction to data science. We had a lot of questions during the presentation and we ended up going over time. Uh, So this will be what you hear today is part one of introduction to data science. I hope you enjoy it. Let me know what you think. Awesome. Thanks for being here for taking time out of your day. So my name is Felipe Flores. I'll do a quick intro in a little bit because what we'll cover today is a lot of the myths, uh, misconceptions, a lot of lessons that I've mostly learned the hard way in terms of how to do things properly. So if you're just starting your journey into data science, and obviously there's a lot of hype at the moment, so we'll try to look behind the curtain into what's behind the hype and how it actually works. But if you're just starting your journey, then this is definitely going to help. So What we'll go through today is uh, five steps to really start your data science journey. And this is with uh, a lot of benefit of hindsight. And as I said before, making mistakes. So hopefully this will help and demystifying the hype and giving you a workable roadmap. A quick intro about myself. So I'll probably start at the bottom. So I'm originally from Chile, from South America. I've been in Australia and working in analytics slash data for 16 years now. When I first started, like many of you guys, didn't know anything about data. I was started uh, doing work using Access Databases, which is like the Microsoft product. And I was working with small to medium businesses, building the databases, reports, and small analysis. Then in 2005, I got into machine learning. I was part of this research project where we built a computer that sits inside a baseball cap or a helmet and it reads brainwave activity to detect how tired truck drivers are in the mines. That went on to become a a commercial product. I'm not involved in the company anymore, but that's still going on today. And that was my introduction to machine learning where we had brainwave activity coming in and I had to build an algorithm that spat out a number between one to five, where when the person gets to number four, they're too tired and can't drive anymore. And then we had alerts in the cabin in the truck. Most recently, I started my own consulting company in the analytics space, did that for five years, and then sold, got out of that, and went into ANZ, went into the largest division of ANZ, which is called Institutional, and going in, I didn't even know what Institutional meant, so they had to tell me that it's the part of the business that does the B2B. So business to business, all the customers of that division of the bank, they're all publicly listed companies, multinationals, and large government organizations, and I went in about four years ago to build their data science team, and over four years, uh, We started with zero, like we're just me coming in. And uh, one of the executives told me at the time, he's like, come and sort out that data stuff. The stuff I don't even want to think about. Yeah, just do something with that. So very low levels of knowledge and low levels of maturity in the organization at the time. And then over the three and a half, four years, we got up to 50 people in the team and um, managed to become a profit center, monetize our data, build products internally and um, help bring in new revenue, new cross sales, new clients and exciting opportunities. One of the good projects that we did was even determine the strategy for the division using data. So we had the first data-driven strategy 
in ANZ, in a company that's been around 180 years. So it was really great to get to work on that. Then I left. I went on a five-month honeymoon earlier this year, and I just got back like two, three weeks ago. And when we were about to leave, I told my wife that I sort of needed a kind of like a pet project to do while we traveled. And she came up with the idea of doing a podcast. She was like, well, why don't you interview interesting people in your space and put those interviews or those conversations out as a podcast? And I'll tell you more about it at the end. But I've been interviewing chief data officers, chief data scientists, general managers of data science, heads of data science. The conversations are focused on their mistakes and their lessons learned, how they got to where they are and what do they wish they knew. This is what we'll cover today. So I have sort of the five steps that I mentioned in the title, five steps to your data science journey. These will be weaved into these three topics that we have. So what can data science do? How does it work? And how can we apply it here? And in there, we have a little bit of sort of practical tips, a little bit of theory, and then the five steps, which we'll definitely come back to at the end to sort of bring it all together. All right, first one, what can data science do? A lot of times when people think of data science and machine learning, artificial intelligence, this is where the mind goes. People think all these sort of buzzwords, fancy stuff, it's all pointing towards automation. Humans are going to be replaced. We're going to be irrelevant. We can't compete with the machine. Everyone thinks about this. But work faster or I'll replace you with AI. And I'm here to tell you that it's completely the opposite, actually. And one of the big myths is exactly that, that essentially automation and machines are going to take over everything and do everything. And that's where I found this that came from a study um, done by Boston Consulting Group and MIT. And they surveyed thousands of companies, executives, people in the data space around what should companies be doing with artificial intelligence, with machine learning, with data science. And the interesting thing here is that the top one, 84% of people are saying we need artificial intelligence to sustain our competitive advantage, right? So it's sort of saying, okay, it means that there's a lot of large companies, some medium companies, they have this advantage that are, is allowing them to stay competitive. They want to maintain, uh, stay ahead of the competition through AI. The second one is uh, what I found really interesting. 75% of people saying that AI will help us go into new businesses. That For that to happen, we need widespread understanding of what AI can do, what machine learning can do. And then every part of the organization needs to be bringing that in to their area of work to say, this is how I work today. This is how I can do my work with AI. And then this is what it will lead me to or allow me to do that is extra or not possible today with the way things are. So it's sort of a process that we can all go into together. And then the organization will be able to go into new markets, do new things. What I'm trying to highlight here is that essentially the top three reasons why companies want to get into artificial intelligence and machine learning, it's so they can do new things. These new things need to be thought of, need to be driven by people. There are problems that will come up along the way. And when people say, oh, machine learning, artificial intelligence, it's just about displacing people. It's about getting rid of jobs. My point of view is that, well, a job exists because there's a problem that needs to be solved. As we get our knowledge of this technology up and running and we're able to do more with it, there will be more problems, different problems, but more problems. And then these are the things that are being, this is the trajectory in which most of the leaders are thinking about today. We want to do new things. We want to add. There'll be problems. We'll definitely need people that can help us with that. 
All right, we'll start getting into the details. And I start with how does uh, machine learning work? And then I'll differentiate sort of machine learning, artificial intelligence, data science, and start to um, demystify some of these concepts. But we'll start with machine learning. How does that work? And for this, in traditional software engineering, we have the input, the data, we have the equation, something to be calculated, or the formula, and then we have the output, which is a result. So if you think of plugging in something into a calculator, the human will be putting in the numbers, will be putting addition, subtraction, multiplication, etc. All the functions, the instructions for the equation, we'll be punching those in ourselves, and then we go equals, and the machine gives us the results. So that's sort of in the calculator, sort of the building block of what happens with software engineering. When we think of Excel, it's the same. We would be putting some data into Excel. We define the formula that we're going to use, and then we go, thanks machine, give me the result. And that's sort of the part that the machine does for us. In traditional software development, software engineering, that's the way that it works at a high level, can be sort of abstracted to that. And it's something that obviously it's still needed now and still needed in the future. The difference with machine learning and artificial intelligence is that as humans, we give the input, we give the data in terms of examples, and we give the output, kind of like what is the answer to this. If we have these digits as an input and we want to get to this other digit, we have the input and the answer. And we have the machine work out the instructions itself. This is what's called the algorithms that a lot of people say. The algorithms themselves, they're literally just a recipe. In the same way that you're going to make a cake or you're going to make a stir fry and you have a recipe of steps to follow, that recipe, the computer science term for recipe, is algorithm. So when people go, oh, you know, it's a really fancy algorithm, you go, great, that's just a recipe. That's literally all it is. And what happens with the machine learning algorithms is that they're based on statistics. So when you look under the hood, each or the majority of the steps do a statistical calculation, which has been around for hundreds of years, most of them. And then that's one of the things that makes it special is that it's based on the statistics. And the second one is that more times than not, it's recursive, which means it runs lots and lots and lots of times to find where it's trying lots of different things to find the best one, the most optimal, according to a measure of performance. So if you take that to thinking about recipes, doing it lots and lots of times, it means just making lots of cupcakes. And then what you're measuring for is the taste of the cupcake. And you're going to make heaps and heaps of cupcakes following this recipe until you get to a cupcake that you like the taste of. And then you go, cool, from now on, this is going to be my cupcake recipe. And that's literally all that the machine learning does. So the cool thing is that by following this recipe, it can get you to your answer to the cupcake that you like the most. And once you have that, that's what's called the model. So the model is essentially your version of the cupcake recipe, the one that you like the most. And yours might be different to mine. Totally understandable that somebody might like choc chip and then the other one likes red velvet. Fine. The recipe, the steps to get there are the same, which is the algorithm. And then the model is the instantiation of that recipe where you find an optimal solution to your problem. And that will get you to a different space. Any questions around this? So you're saying there's still pretty much the same amount of person, people input, whether it's or people work to be done, whether it's machine learning or traditional software engineering. Not necessarily, because in software engineering, you have to define all the 
instructions yourself. So then that can get a bit tricky at times where, for example, just before, Goran was telling me about a programming assignment that he's working on, where the programming assignment has layouts, has lots of functions, needs to do some filtering, some prioritization. So all the way to do that filtering needs to be coded in. You could use a library that's available from somewhere else, but more times than not, you'll be coding in instructions yourself. And generally, you have to be quite descriptive with them in your code. While with machine learning, you can get the library that runs, that has this algorithm, you put your data into it, and then it runs. And that's why it needs a lot of compute, because it'll be crunching the data, ideally lots of data. But from that side, the code to run the actual algorithm can sometimes look simple on the surface, because you're calling a lot of recipes and instructions that people have built up through this. And they're recipes that are a bit more generic. So you can put in the parameters that you need in order to make it work on your problem. While on the software engineering side, you do need to specify each step yourself. So it does, I would say, just looking at it from that perspective, the software engineering is more difficult or takes more time in terms of writing the code. And as we'll see later on, what takes the time on the data science side is preparing the data for it to be ready in a format that can be put into the algorithms. Any other questions so far? We have the known input, known output, it can work out the algorithm and then we can start projecting to the new input what we will do Correct. So if you think about an example where you're using Google and you want to search for images of a dog. So you go on Google, you go dog, search, and you click images and it gives you all these pictures. Then you will click the ones that look like a dog because you'll want to see it a bit bigger. So essentially what you're doing there is you're getting the input, which is all the pictures of the dog, the catalog in front of you as a result of the search. And then you're giving it the answer to what a dog is by clicking on the picture to open it bigger, right? It's showing you that the input from this catalog that it has and you're giving it the answer. And essentially what you're doing with that is you're teaching the Google AI how to pick a dog, a picture of a dog, out of a picture of anything, right? You're literally, every time you're using it, you're like, this is a dog, this is a dog, this is a dog. So you're giving it more and more answers, more and more examples. Basically, rather than Google defining each picture of the dog or not, it is relying on the user. They are defining more which means it does have more chances to be a dog. Correct. And early on, you always got a random picture. You might be searching for a dog and you might get a picture of an ice cream. And you go, oh, well, that sucks. But nine out of 10 are dogs and those are the ones that you click. But as you and me and everyone is teaching this AI more and more on how to define what's in an image, it's definitely got a lot better over time as a result of using this methodology. So I suppose in the past you would have maybe tried to code in some sort of matrix of like pixels and you'd say, oh, ears are typically this far from the nose and, you know, the body is like this long and da-da-da-da. You're providing a sort of a structure or the plan of how a dog works. Exactly. And in that case, you would be giving it the rules yeah. or the instructions. So, for example, before I discovered machine learning or before I started working on it, it was um, 2004 or something, the, the year before I did this mining project, I actually had to process some images and do recognition of license plates in cars from the pictures being taken by red light cameras. 
and I didn't know machine learning. So literally what I did was start to write a set of instructions in order to pull out the license plate number from these images. So I said, it's generally on the bottom third of the image. So when the image comes in, let's get rid of the top two thirds. And then let's look for a line that it can be exactly horizontal or a little bit this way, a little bit that way. And then when we find that line, make sure that there's two lines like this, and then we focus on what's inside. And these are the things that we look for. And obviously writing all those instructions, it is time consuming, but also you're not gonna capture everything, right? I suppose like with, you know, if you were human, like we consciously will sort of, feel like what we know a license plate looks like, you know, on a picture or whatever, but unconsciously there's a lot more going on in the background. That's what you would miss out in coding if you're trying to do it manually. Correct. And that's where, you know, in some of the more advanced applications that we see now, it's around how do we get an AI to drive a car? Obviously, pretty much everyone here drives. If you had to write down all the instructions on how you drive, it would take ages. And then you have to think about all the really rare scenarios. So it's like, oh, well, that one time I was driving up the mountain in the snow and, you know, it was kind of slippery, so I did X. But the 95% of the time you drive a certain way. But then there was that one time that you drove in the sand, right? So then you have to start making all these rules to explain the computer how to do it. Or you can have a car that's collecting the data, so has all these sensors around it, and then you can have somebody driving it. I heard uh, a while back, there's this guy, George Fox, he's one of the biggest, like, the bigger names in the coding for you know, autonomous cars. What he said was, like, if statements crash cars, like... Yeah. 100%. 100%. Because, yeah, it's very difficult to offer rules for everything, but you can offer examples for everything a lot easier. Cool. So, then we get into... With machine learning, it's a really big area, right? Obviously, as we said, there's a lot of hype, but it's a really big area, which means it can be divided in a few different ways. One of the main ways to divide it is this, that there's two types of algorithms that provide literally like 99% of the value that so far has been able to get from machine learning. 99% of the value to date has been through these two types, obviously broad categories, but two types of algorithms classifications and regressions. So that's a really sort of good high level way of slicing this problem space or this domain. For classifications, what they do is classifications are used to pick from a category. So if we had the example of the pictures of Google and the pictures, right? Picking from a category is like, is this a dog or is this a cat? You can say, is this positive or is this negative? Is this tumor benign? Or malignant. So there's generally a discrete number of categories to choose from. And you can start with two and you can go up to more categories if you have more data or more examples, more answers. So say, for example, if you had 10 categories to choose from, which can be, is this image a number? And if so, what number is it? Right? So then you would have 10 categories from zero to nine. And then you go, great, I need to show it. And if you're trying to understand handwritten numbers, I need to show it lots of examples to this algorithm for it to be able to pick one of those 10 categories. So one of the big areas or families of algorithms are these classifications. And the other one is the regressions. Regressions give you a precise number. And this is generally a continuous number. More times than not, it will be expressed as, as something from zero to one. So it'll be a zero point eight nine seven six three 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 those types of algorithms are used when you're trying to identify probability of default can this person repay this loan 
how likely is this person to leave us as a customer, to churn? Either how likely is something to happen? Those are the types of problems that regressions are great, and that's where the predicted number comes in. And it generally gives you a continuum between the zero and one. And the more data you give it, the more accurate the interpolation is going to be. That's getting back to the statistics. The more statistical analysis of one input is not really a statistical analysis. So the more data you have, the more statistical chance of probability is correct. Exactly right. The other thing is that I use this word interpolation because that's something that I think is quite important with machine learning. One of the weaknesses, I guess, and one of the things that we need to be aware of is that it can generally predict only in cases that it's seen before or something that is within the range of what it's seen before. But a lot of time when people don't realize that the, this is going to sound, I don't know, kind of corny, but that the machine needs to learn from the examples that you give it it will only be able to extract knowledge from those examples. So if you give it examples within a range, and then you ask it to predict something way outside the range, the machine is going to give you a number, like it's going to give you a predicted number. And then it's up to you how you take that, essentially, what you do with that output. So understanding that weakness is really important, that it is always from things within the range of examples that the machine has seen. So classifications and regressions, two big ones. Definitely two big types of problems. So when you're facing a problem going forward and you think, we go back to this one, and you go, great, I have some input data, I have some answers, I would like to use machine learning here. The next thing to do is to go, great, are we picking from a category or do we want to get a number? And that'll help you start to identify what the best approach is. And then with the models, this goes into um, using the algorithms. There's a way that we have to structure our data, our examples. And this is really crucial. And it's something that actually a lot of people don't do enough or don't have this distinction consciously enough in their mind. That is when you have your full data set, so your set of inputs and examples, inputs and answers, you have to divide it into at least two groups, which one is the train or training set and the other one is the test set. So if you think of the way that you learn, and when you were at school and you had an exam coming up, you would train at home or at school doing your homework, where you would do problem examples, or you would do, say, trying to solve math problems, and you would get to your answer, and then you could check at the back of the book whether your answer was correct. During that time, you were training to see how good you were, and you did that for some time. And then eventually you went to the exam, which is your test. And in your exam, you would see problems that you hadn't seen before, most likely, and you had to try and use your knowledge to solve them. And somebody would have the answers, and then they would check how accurate your answers were and give you your grade. So the machine is the same, but we are the teachers in this case. So when we have our full data set, we have to split it and give, as a rule of thumb, about 70% of the data, both the inputs and the outputs, give that to the algorithm for it to learn from. And then every algorithm has a few parameters that we can play around with. But the whole idea is that we're in study mode. It's about the training. And we have to be conscious to have left part of the data, the remaining, leave it out, make sure that the algorithm doesn't see that until it's finished with the training or with the learning. And then you go, all right, buddy, here's your exam. Boom. And then you're going to test its understanding or its accuracy on the data that it hasn't seen before. So this is data that you've accumulated. So if you, you, pre, you just split it, say, 70, 30, and then... Correct. So you start with the full data set yourself, and you split it into these two groups. Feed one to the algorithm for learning, and one 
for testing for exam time. And what I have here at the bottom is pretty much the only exception or not exception. It's um, how you split the data. So more times than not, we spoke about the algorithms learn only from the data that it's seen. So when you're splitting the data into the 70-30, you're effectively choosing what examples it sees during the study time and what examples it's going to get during exam time. So you have to make sure that you're giving it all the examples that you would like to test it on. You're giving it at least a few of those examples during the learning time. So like if you're studying equations and you're learning about linear equations during your study time, and then you go to your test and you have a few linear equations and a few quadratic equations. And then you go, well, shit, like I didn't know this. I didn't know this was on the test. It's the same. So you would want to give it linear equations, quadratic equations here during the training. And then for the test, you will give it linear equations and quadratic equations, but problems that it hasn't seen before or examples it hadn't seen before to see how it performs. And then there is a special type of data, which is called the time series data, which is ones that we collect over time, say, for example, things like the stock market prices. So the price, generally one of the influences, the price of a stock is the previous price. So it has in the prediction, there is some information about the history that is needed to be taken into consideration for that prediction. When you have time series data, the only thing there is that you have to be careful not to give it information from the future during the learning or training time and then test it on the past. So what I mean is that you might have data from 2015 to 2018, and then you'll say, I will train my model. So it will learn on 2015 data and 2016 data. And that's what you use as your 70% of data to train, 2015, 2016. Then when we go to test, we will test it on 2017. Does that make sense? So you're testing it on things it hasn't seen before, but you are conscious that there is a timeline there that is important, and you're taking that into consideration when, when dividing your data set into these two groups. So train on 2015, 2016, test on 2017. You can tell how accurate it is, and then you can use that to make predictions in 2018. Any questions around this one? That's a really good question. So this is essentially a, a rule of thumb to use in terms of how much data to use for training and for testing. Other people will say 80-20. It's something around that margin is good. And you just have to make sure that you give it examples of everything you want to test it and keep those things in mind. And then one of the outputs of the algorithm is that it will tell you how accurate it is and what type of confidence it has on its predictions. And then you can decide hey, is that level of confidence good enough for me or not? And then that depends on what action you want to take from that information on how much confidence you need to go forward. So does that get directionally better if you go towards yeah, look, there is some people that do 50-50 or 60-40, and there are cases where that's definitely beneficial. So then what I recommend is uh, give it a go. Try it with 70-30, try with 80-20, 90-10, 50-50, 60-40, and then see what type of outputs you get from your model. But just make sure that it's been separated, the training and the test, so it doesn't turn for you. So when you go in the test phase, the machine can self-learn the answer is wrong projection is wrong, how to correct it again in the next time. Correct. So if you're doing this loop of training and testing more than once, then the machine will learn, the algorithm will learn. So you essentially have to have... So should you do like 70 and then 10, and then the next 10, and then the next 10? So... Rather than 70 and 30? Correct. 
Correct. So you can do that. And there's people that have three groups. And one of the tools that I'll show you later, by default, it gives you a training, a test, and then it calls an evaluation, which is sort of the next loop that the algorithm will learn from the test. So then we have extra data that it hasn't seen to test it again. And you can do as many splits as you want. So it's that iteration and refining process. Correct. What you want. And that's the whole machine learning system. Yes. Exactly right. And then some of the more advanced models, the algorithm splits the data for you at random, both in the rows, but also the columns. And it introduces randomness into it to make it a more sturdy predictive model. And then you'll have heaps of cases where it's seeing all different examples and trying to predict. And then once you bring all those together, you get a much better prediction. But it starts here. Yes, sir. So the question is, how do you test the accuracy of the machine learning model? Essentially, how do you know that it's a workable model, something that you should use? And what happens is that you have the answers for this test set that the machine hasn't seen before. So if you think about the images with the cats and dogs that Google is showing you that we we're talking about before, you will have, say, 10,000 images with the label, essentially with the answer that said, this image is a dog, this image is a cat, this image a dog, right? And you can show that to the algorithm during the training phase, and then you'll have a different set that is the same type of data, that it's an image and says, it's a dog image, it's a cat image, it's a dog. But you don't tell the machine what it is. Correct. So here you get the machine to predict just seeing the input during the test set. You should know, and you should already know that that input is X, and if it gives you X, correct. If it gives you Y, it's incorrect. Correct. So during the test time, you should know what the answer is for each of the inputs, because in this case, you are the teacher at school. So the teacher gives you an exam, it doesn't have the answers, you solve it, and then you give it back to the teacher, and the teacher has the answers, and it can check how well you did. So the question is, over time, as you go through the loops, do you expect the accuracy to increase and for the algorithm to converge with your set of answers? And the answer is yes, but as we'll see a little bit later on, it depends on the data that it can see as an input and whether it's possible or not. So I've had cases where in my team, one of the guys has built a, a predictive model that on the first pass, it was say 68% accurate, what we find on the test set, and then they make some improvements, and then second time it might be 77% accurate, and we're really happy, but then we go and discuss it with executives, and I've had cases where people go like, 77% accurate? That's pretty bad. I thought all this machine learning stuff was 99% accurate or more. And I was like, well, no, if it was that, then we'd all be like playing the lotto, going to casinos, like we wouldn't be here. <laughs> Obviously that's unrealistic, but there is always a level that you started with as you go through the process. As you said, you expect it to get better and better and you will reach a ceiling. But in the overwhelming majority of cases where machine learning can be applied or should be applied, anywhere close to that ceiling is more than great. <laughs> I think last week, before I went to the machine learning training and the instructor there was sort of asked a similar question and he was saying it depends on where you are. Like in the stock market, like a point of a percent, you know, 0.3, 0.4, whatever, over a long run can be a lot of money. So, and actually another thing I wanted to ask you, yeah. one of the algorithms, the random forest one, is that a bit different in terms of the way it does it? Because that, like from what I understand, will take all the data and then take out one point, which is the test value and it predicts that test value then iterates that throughout the whole set so if you've got 10,000 data points it'll do 999 sorry 9,999 and then predict that one and then repeat go back and forth and 
pick out each one. Is that correct? So uh, Goran was just mentioning an algorithm called random forest. And in a little bit, we're going to see an algorithm that's called a tree like a decision tree, which is like the basic version. And then the upgrade version is the random forest, right? Which has lots of trees, as in like it's doing the same algorithm heaps and heaps of times. And then the random part of the name comes in because for every time it creates one of these trees, it picks different columns in the data and different rows in the data. So it picks a random, creates a data set, gives it to a tree to work out the answer then picks different columns and different rows, gives it to another tree to work out the answer, and does that over and over and over again for as many trees as you tell it to. So for that algorithm, you give it the full data set, and it does this split for you automatically, and then at the end, combines the predictions of all these trees where each tree gets a vote to say, I think it's a dog. Next tree comes in, says, I think it's a dog. Next tree comes in, I think it's a cat. Next tree, I think it's a dog. And then at the end, it combines all those votes. What do you think? What do you think? What do you think? And then gives you, like in that example, 75% of trees think that this is a dog. And then you can take that to do your um, predictions. So we will go through the base version of that. So before we jump in, this is just to sort of clarify things a little bit. These are some of the hype words. So artificial intelligence, machine learning, deep learning. What does it mean? How do they compare to each other? Where does it sit? So in general, artificial intelligence is the broader discipline where at the moment, the places where artificial intelligence has made the most impact is in very narrow problems. So predicting, for example, what drugs are going to work better on certain types of cancer, artificial intelligence is doing really well at that. Some of the examples here, are tagging your face, recognizing your face out of a picture. Artificial intelligence is doing well at that. So what it is, it's a very very narrow problem that you can show it hundreds of thousands of examples and it will learn from that. And it's generally the bigger term because it does use a bit of software development or traditional programming. It does use machine learning, which is one of the sub-disciplines. And in machine learning, as we discussed before, there are algorithms that learn what instructions the computer needs to create to go from your input data to your output data. So it's obviously a big part of what makes artificial intelligence possible. And within machine learning, in the part of machine learning that has had the most value, there's a few different camps. And one of the most popular ones at the moment is deep learning. With deep learning as an algorithm family, you can do both classifications and regressions, as we spoke about before. And then the algorithm family itself is deep learning. So just wanted to clarify that one. And then this is a really, I guess, passionate topic for me. And it's something that I've sort of been discussing throughout the whole presentation is that generally when people think of machine learning, artificial intelligence, they say, great, go full automation and essentially get rid of humans. I think that the focus should be on the opposite to say, how do we use machine learning to help us think better, know more, make better decisions? And how do you get machine learning to do work for you and to teach you instead of you handing everything over to machine learning and artificial intelligence? So, and this is where we get to the tree. So as I said before, machine learning for humans, use it to help you think better. You start with what decision are you trying to make? When you have a focus in helping humans with machine learning, it really helps you understand the problems and the decisions that you're trying to make better, and then it can help other people as well. This is an example of a decision tree. I guess the weird thing here is that in these machine learning trees, they have the root of the tree is at the top, and we have the leaves of the tree at the bottom. So it's kind of like an upside down tree. And the leaves 
are groups of data, small groups of data that have been carved out by using the rules that the tree finds. And this group of data is very similar in a measure that you care about. So then the rules tell you how the algorithm is making that decision. So in this example, we have fruits. So we have our input data, which is the first two columns, and then we have our answer or our label, which is the third one, right? So we're saying we've got two apples, two grapes, and a lemon. Cool, what information are we feeding the machine about it? The color and the diameter of each. And then we say, algorithm, tell me, how would you split the fruits? How would you separate the apples from the grapes from the lemons? And it tries lots of different iterations and then it goes, well, the best I can find is that you can start by separating by diameter. So is the diameter greater than three? If yes, then you're either an apple or a lemon or a lemon. If no, so if it's less than three, then you're probably a grape. And then in that case, it creates this leaf node, which is the group. And it tells you in this group, using this one rule, we have 100% of the cases are grape. So then it extracts the rules from the data and it shows you very clearly, hey, this is what I'm doing. If you apply this rule, then you will know for certain whether you have a grape or not. So the question is, can the algorithm tell me what's the most important column out of my input? And the answer is yes. The trees will use, in the first rule, it will use the most important column to separate. And by most important, it says with, the algorithm is saying with me picking diameter and splitting at three, I can get the best groups below, the best leaves. And by best, it's trying to create groups that are similar in terms of the answer. So in the tree, always the first rule is the most important column and the best way you can split it. And when you do lots of trees and do the forest, it does that as well. It tells you, and it's also done by the vote as we spoke before. So it says you created a thousand trees and guess what? 900 of those trees used diameter as the first rule. So as a forest, we say that diameter is the most important column there to predict what you're trying to predict. So it also like compares itself like the diameter against other fields. So it also looks at yeah. Correct. So it does look at intersections, correlations, and for each column, it tries to find the best split. In this diameter column, we only have two numbers, but if we had more numbers, it would tell you, and it could say if diameter is greater than 2.5, even though there might not be a diameter of 2.5 here, but it says. Some of the time it's at three, some of the time it's at two. So it says 2.5 is the best split. And then the most important column is that diameter. One of the interesting things is that, and that I find that sometimes people struggle to think in this kind of new way, which is around statistics, is the best shortcut that I can think of is that everything is thought of as a group. So generally when you think of numbers, people say, well, numbers, it's an exact science and you get the one number, and that number is the answer. And when it comes to math, yes, definitely. When it comes to statistics, everything is thought of as a group. And the reason why I'm saying that now is because in this case, we're applying two rules on diameter and on color, we're getting yes, but the leaf or the group that we end up with, it's actually a mixed group. So the algorithm is saying, from the data that I have, the best I can do is create these two rules for you. But at the end, you'll still have a 50-50 split in terms of whether it's a, an apple or a lemon. And when people see that, a lot of times they go, well, that's pretty bad. It's just giving me 50-50. I can just toss a coin. Yeah, but that's pure chance. And the thing is that you have to remember where you started. So where you started was here. 
where you essentially have a one in five in this case, or, you know, there's three examples, but. So the question is, the algorithm cannot use shape to split the fruits apart because you haven't provided that data in. Yes, exactly right. So you're spot on. In this case, the algorithm can't split on shape because you haven't provided shape. Just on that, like, again, going back to that sort of course last week, it was interesting. The instructor was trying to extract more data from the data and he was like doing really cool things like days of the week. He was saying like how, yeah, you could number these from one to seven, no problem, but you miss out information to provide for the data that is cyclical. You could do that or you could create tangential sort of coordinates or and then in that sense, you're telling the data, well, Sunday is opposite Wednesday and Tuesday is opposite whatever. And then you can look at seasons and then use that as a predictor in your thing. So yeah, it's pretty cool stuff. Exactly. So then when you get data, there are lots of things that you can do. And this is where the, the creativity comes in into preparing the data. You can do a lot of very creative things to extract more information from the data that you have. So a great example is when you have a date. Right? So you have a day, month, and year. And you go, great, I can feed that to the algorithm. And yes, you can. What you can do additionally is to split that one field of information. You can split it into as many component parts as you can. So you can split out the day of the month and you can have that as a new column. You can split out the month, have that as a new column. You can split out the year, have that as a new column. So you went from one column to four with the three new ones. And then you can keep going. You can add the season, you can add public holidays, you can tell the algorithm that the days of the week are cyclical, you can tell it the days of the week, and then suddenly we have like eight columns where we started with one. And you can keep going. You can say, here's the holidays for the Christian calendar. And then here we have uh, the Jewish calendar and etc. right? If you're trying to understand, say, different behaviors of people, then you can add all this information into the data set for the model. So is that typically what you'll do? You'll look at your result and see how well your model did. And you're like, hmm, I'll go back and see if I can split any fields up. Yes. And you would want to do, be doing that during your training time yeah, so that's all again about the almost the learning statistics the more important the more data sets the better the output yes to a degree yes sir so the question there is that with uh in this case we're using the the diameter as a rule to separate or the model is saying that it doesn't look at any other information that could be the color So you're spot on in the sense that when you create more columns in your data, you will have data that the algorithm will essentially tell you that there's data that is more helpful to do this separation and data that's essentially less helpful. So that goes back to what we were saying before that about picking the column that is more important. And then there will be some data that's not used. Correct. Sorry. Correct. So the way that it's testing what's most important is based on the trying to predict the answer that you're asking it for. So then if you have a different thing, say we had color and label as the input and we're trying to predict diameter, in this case, then the tree would be completely different. So then you set what it's aiming for. So the question is, we only have one condition here to split the data. Can we use more than one condition? And in the decision tree, the reason why I love the decision tree is because it gives you these rules very explicitly. In the case of one tree, it will only give you one rule at every step. At every breaking point, there will only be one rule. But when you go to the next level up and you do the random forest, then you'll get lots of rules that will be used as the first instance. And then you get to pick from the vote. 
because the tree is the combination of fields, of features, and all that sort of stuff, isn't it? Like, as you just said, the nodes don't need to be combined because the tree themselves doing that. Is that correct? So the nodes is where the rule sits, and then the tree is created by yeah, the split. We do lots and lots of trees. So in the yeah. forest, yes. So when you do the lots and lots of variations, <laughs> then you almost don't need to do lots of rule divisions each line because that's going to be done at a different tree down the road. Correct. Okay. Spot on. So the comment there was that in this case, the algorithm is saying that diameter is the most important column in order to split these fruits and that it's telling you that. So that essentially diameter is the most important, carries the most information in order to allow you to split this and make this decision. Yes, One more thing, just going yeah. back to that question before, just doesn't it take the field, create a node, and to me this is like the output of the algorithm. The algorithm itself in the learning will take each field and then create a massive tree of every other field and then do the same thing with every other one except for itself, obviously. And then he picks out the most important routes. And this is sort of how he comes up with it. Is that correct? So the way that it does it actually is creates lots of trees with splits at different ways. So it creates sort of lots of versions of the model and then test how accurate each one is based on having the most pure groups at the end. And then the one that is the most pure, or that has the most pure groups, that's the one that it says, here's the model. This is the power of having it random because it's meant to capture the characteristics the whole thing rather than running through the whole population anyway. correct that's where the random forest is powerful yes sir so for the a decision tree no because the decision tree only gives you one rule at a time in order to create these groups but then when we go to create these two groups at the end for that we will need the combination of these two rules. So we say, if the diameter is greater than three, yes, and the color is yellow, then we have a 50-50 between apple and lemon. But if the diameter is greater than three and the color is not yellow, then we know for a fact that it's an apple. Exactly, and then we can have another split here that will help us split between the apples and the lemons at this end leaf. The comment there is you can apply this to see how people make decisions to buy a car and you can have information about the individuals. If you have, for example, their postcode, you can add information about the postcode. If they dealt with you before, you can add information about those interactions too and then their choice of car that they bought, which is, would be your label that you're trying to predict. And if you have lots and lots of rows of that, examples with the answers, you can put it through a decision tree and it'll start to split. And the way that it's going to split, it's going to try and create groups of people that buy the same car. And it will give you the rules, essentially how those people make that decision to buy that car. Or what type of demographics do they have when they buy that car, based on the information that you provided. Yes, sir. Oh, good. <clears throat> Why not a color split? Small children could classify those by either color or by size. Correct. Why not simply classify by color? I love it. So that's where humans are better. And the point of demystifying machine learning, my sort of main argument is that we should use machine learning for humans, essentially to teach us how the machine sees things. And it gives us a contrast to say, we would look, a human can just look at it and get color. A machine will look at diameter first, and then you can do the combination. And if you tell it to. Correct. So you're in control. You're in control in terms of what you provide to the machine. The machine which is classifying fruit by size or by diameter or by weight. 
you're doing classifiers on multiple different criteria, not just two. Yes, spot on. So this is the decision tree is literally yes, no at every level. Correct. Options, like, you can't yeah. say is the diameter greater than two but less than three. That would be another node. Correct. So in this case, it would be the diameter is greater than three, and then in here it would be is it two, is it greater than two or less than two? So it would start to split there. Correct. And this is in machine learning the simplest model. So you can't get simpler than this. And one of the reasons why it is simple is because it does one split at a time. So a lot of people go, well, that's too simplistic. True. But then when you're trying to learn and understand for yourself what the machine is seeing in the data, then having a really simple algorithm is great, in my opinion. And then from here, you can go to random forests, you can go to neural networks, you can go to deep learning. And in deep learning, you can have literally like thousands of columns that are seeing at the same time and taken into consideration jointly not one at a time. That's why deep learning is able to classify images, do sound, understand text, because it's able to join all these essentially columns or sometimes not even columns. It's finding the columns itself. That's the, the power of deep learning. This Super is, helpful. This is a very simplistic example of what deep learning, machine learning is about. It's not, you would probably not do anything this simple in real life. So this is not only a very simplistic version of machine learning. This is the simplest. Like this is literally ground floor. And what happens is that a lot of people dismiss it and they say, hey, I need the fancy stuff. Give me deep learning or nothing. And that's where the, all the hype is at the moment. And I completely disagree with it because I can tell you like at ANZ, 180 year old bank, we had this huge division, 5,000 people work there. That division is responsible for 50% of the revenue for the group. And one of my first tasks when I joined was to do the division's first data-driven strategy. And there was three, data scientists that we were working on like billions of data points. We were working for weeks, doing really fancy algorithms, and then killing ourselves, working late nights, weekends, everything. And then at the end, literally the thing that determined the strategy was a decision tree that took all the thousands of columns that we had prepared and it gave people splits that they could understand. And we worked with the executives and they said, great, we want more grapes and less apples. Therefore, our strategy going forward is going to be, if the diameter is less than three, we're good to go. And I went, shit, like we just killed ourselves for weeks. On what? On diameters less than three? That's why I love the simplistic side, because it can teach you to see what happens in hundreds of thousands or millions of examples, right? In this case, customers and how to pick them. What is a good customer for us? As a result of doing that strategy, we chose to exit or ANZ chose to exit and fire a lot of customers. So to say these customers, the apples, they're not good for us. We're losing money servicing apples, but we love grapes. New strategy, get more grapes, get rid of the apples. It's really good also like as a check or a review on your knowledge as time goes by. If it is sort of simple to implement, then you're really just looking at your data and say, oh, I didn't know that. That's pretty good. Rather than just assuming the same process over and over again. I love that. That's exactly my point. So by using machine learning to see what the algorithm can tell from the data, it can supplement your thinking. It can show you things that you hadn't considered before. It will give you a different perspective and that will help you make better decisions, think better, approach problems differently. That's the value that I would really like you guys to think about instead of saying, we're just going to automate everything. Great. 
then the machine gets better and better and the lion's share of the work. Turn that on its head and go, I need the machine to tell me what it knows, so then I'm gonna be way better. And continually have the machine feed you information. So it's just building up your knowledge as well. Yeah. And to get into, don't try and go become a racing car driver when you're, you've never driven a car before. So that's where start off with this, understand how it works, and then add more complexity over time as you get to know either more data points and more understand it. Love it. Don't be a race car driver straight away. Start slow, learn the basics, go forth. And I can tell you, like, some of the, the best data scientists in the world, the guys that are solving predictions that earn them millions of dollars in a single competition, because there's worldwide competitions, when you sit down with the best guys in the world, they literally go through this process and they also try to, for example, one of the things that they do is they graph the column that they're trying to predict. They do a chart of that versus each one of the input variables. If I have label versus diameter, what does my chart look like? They go, hmm, interesting. What is label versus color? What does that look like? Hmm, interesting. I think that's something that a lot of people miss these days is that your brain is a, ma a fantastic thing at recognizing patterns that you don't have to code like over days and find algorithms. You use that to make the decision on which thing to then run the computer on. Spot on. So your brain can recognize these patterns and then you can use that power and that intuition to learn for yourself and then you choose what you ch show the machine. And that's literally what the best guys do. They go through thousands of columns versus the column that they want to predict. They graph them and then they go, great, here's my top 10 that I think are the most important. Let's try them. Some of them try them one at a time. So they have what they're trying to predict and one input column, run the model. Then two input columns, run the model. Three input columns, even though they might have thousands, right? They go one at a time. Some guys throw a few at a time. You're starting with the baby steps and building up. Instead of what most people think of machine learning to say, grab all the data you can, throw it against the fanciest model, and then boom, done. And then I go, well, if that's the case, that can be automated. You're not needed. The world that you are needed is where you understand this and you go through the process and you learn and you get better. Great question. So the question is, when does the human decide? When does the machine decide? When is it better? And the best evolution that I've seen on that side is actually with chess. In the case of chess, for thousands of years, people played it, people dominated, we had grandmasters, killed it. Then in 1997, IBM made this computer Deep Blue, which was the first artificial intelligence that could play chess at a level that it beat the greatest grandmaster at the time, Gary Kasparov. So he was the Roger Federer of chess. He was the guy. In 1997, he gets beaten publicly on TV, disgraced. He gets beaten by a computer. What did people think? Chess is over. Humans are not going to play chess again. Now, if that's the domain of the machines, we humans have to go and play something else. What ended up happening is that later on, the AIs got smarter and smarter and better and started competing against each other. And everyone went, great, that's what we all expected, me included. That's what I expected. New golden era of chess, machines versus machines, AI only. And then what happened is that later on, they had human with an AI playing against an AI. The human was making the final decision, but the AI was feeding it all the possible alternatives and combinations that it could see from the current chessboard playing. The human made the call time after time, the human plus AI beat the AI alone. So then people went, great, new golden era of chess. It's all gonna be human plus AI versus human plus AI. Great, new golden era of chess. And it definitely 
happened for a few years. And a lot of the research and the creativity on how you create that symbiosis or how do you get the human and machine communication? How does the machine show the human what it knows in the best possible way? And then what it evolved to now is that you have teams of grandmasters, usually four or up to four, teams of grandmasters with their own custom-made AI playing against teams of grandmasters with their own custom AI. And now, currently, that's the golden era of chess. What is better? Who makes the decision? What I want you guys to take away from this is that it's the combination. Get the machine to do the work for you, and you pick, you get feedback from the machine, you improve and improve over time. Gaurav said, the machine will give you probability and it doesn't have a gut feeling. Spot on. So for example, my wife is a doctor. One of the things that they have to carry in their, their head is the probability of success of different tests. And according to the sensitivity and the specificity and etc., all these statistical measures for each test. And then how does that combine with your specific features, age, weight, health, etc.? Then that gives you a probability that the test is accurate and that it will be helpful. And then essentially she says to me, she's like, it really sucks carrying all these probabilities in my head. She's like, I'm kind of bad at it. And the doctors develop rule of thumbs because there's thousands of tests. And I go, well, yes, a machine can tell you the probabilities. If we could feed it all the relevant data, then the algorithm could tell you. But then the best person, going back to the chess example, the best person to make the decision is the doctor. Just that in today's world, we have an unassisted doctor, unaugmented doctor. In the future, we will have an augmented doctor, where we'll have the same as, sorry, as same as chess, where it will be doctor plus AI killing it. Because the AI can get the experience from like hundreds of thousands of doctors and hundreds of thousands of patients and feed it to each individual doctor. And then the doctor, it's going to be like the new golden age of medicine. And the doctors are going to be so much better for it. And then that is what I believe is going to propel all of us forward. And that's why this stuff is important for everyone to know. So the question is, is the humans going to be replaced or is it always going to be a combination? My point of view is that it's up to you. Each one of you, correct? Yeah. Because if you think that the machine can take it all, do it all better, and we should all collectively go, through, go towards automation only, then there's huge dangers. And yeah, it will be all about the machine. But if each one of us goes, okay, what can I learn? What can the machine teach me? How can I get better? And have the machine as essentially a worker for me and one of my inputs, then we will get better. I did see a hand over here, yes? So the question is there around uh, what's behind Elon Musk's point of view to say the AI is the greatest existential danger that humans have. So he goes like climate change, invasion from aliens, AI, it's the worst. And then so the question is like, why does he say that when he's a dude that's building driverless cars and is completely wanting to automate his factories, even though like last year there was a tweet to say that he said humans are hugely underrated. And that's because he tried to automate too much of his factory and then it actually couldn't produce the cars and kind of collapsed. And then they had to hire about 7,000 short-term workers to come and they installed tents outside of the mega factory to be able to produce the cars. And that was the first time that they got to the level of production that they had promised about three or four years ago. And he goes, humans had to do it because we can adapt and we can solve problems. The reason why he says that the... AI will kill us all and sort of take over. It's because we choose what to feed it. 
and what it should try to predict. And that can have hugely negative repercussions on us if we're not careful and if we don't understand how this stuff works. Prime example is on hiring. So if you look at an organization like in the US, there's this TV channel called Fox News that can have good or bad reputation depending on who you are. But historically, it has had, if you look at the, the numbers of people that it has hired, it hired and promoted mostly white males. Those were the guys that were rising to the top. And then females were sort of stuck in admin tasks and etc. That's how the company has worked so far to a large extent. If you create an AI that says, I want you to choose who gets hired and who gets promoted, and you feed it the examples from Fox News, and you say, now this AI is going to hire and promote across all companies, what are we going to get on the other side? So then this is where the, the thinking goes to, right? We have a bunch of inherent biases that some we're conscious of and we're working our way through as a society, some unconscious and we still have work to do. And if we blindly pump that data, those examples into a machine learning algorithm, it will have those biases and they will be exacerbated and used everywhere. And if we're not careful and don't understand how this stuff works, then that will be terrible and it can hurt us more than it can benefit us. And then the point here at the front was, well, how about we remove name and gender and do essentially everything else? Now, what's happened is that there's guys today that are doing extremely cutting-edge work in deep learning, so one of the big areas at the moment, and they have proven that over 90% of directors of HR, when they're hiring somebody, they have proven through the algorithms that these people look for two things, and it's likability and physical attractiveness. There's companies, there's an example, a higher view, and it's one of the guys that I interviewed in the podcast, actually. He was walking me through all these examples. And in their case, they have hundreds of thousands of video footage of actual interviews. They have the person's CVs, their background, and they have information about how they performed at their work than the track, with a view of trying to predict who's going to be the best at specific jobs. They had their predictions, and then when they tested it against the humans, the humans is likability and physical attractiveness. So then the input to that, to the algorithm, is already biased. And then they're like, great, how do we remove that bias? Is that because most HR managers are female? No, definitely not. So their thing was, how do we remove that bias? in the data. So once they found what were the most important factors that the algorithm was using to decide, they tried to predict those factors. So they took the video footage, the CV, everything, and they said, let's try to predict physical attractiveness and let's try to predict likability. And then all the features, all the columns that were used to do that, they went back and they took it out of the original data set. And then the data without those is what they fed into the machine learning algorithm to try and predict without bias. But anyway, there's a whole work. Sorry, we saw that one first. Yes, sir? For me personally, it's not so much about oversight. It's about you understanding. And that's why I love doing this stuff. Because I think that in today's world, everyone should know how to read and write. In tomorrow's world, everyone should know how algorithms work because they can work for you or against you. Sorry, yes, sir? I think it is a problem that we as a society have to deal with. And for us to deal with it in the best possible way, we all need to understand what are the fundamental building blocks and the strengths and weaknesses and not see it as a black box, but dive into a little bit. Before these two, I think I saw one hand over here, no? So the question is, is it realistic to think that we'll have completely 
driverless cars completely autonomous within three to four years? My personal opinion is definitely. As in like, definitely we will have the sensors as in like lasers and cameras and GPS and all the data capture that needs to be fed into an algorithm that will be there. We will have enough compute power. We actually almost kind of do now. And then what we are gathering at the moment is examples of people driving with the input data being captured. So we spoke about Tesla. I know that Ford has made an acquisition around uh, driverless cars. There's Waymo. What all these companies are doing is literally, and Tesla is, is beating everyone on this particular front, not on the whole driverless thing, but on this particular front, is that they're capturing more data with answers of what a human would do, more data than anyone. So then you just, and by just is obviously a huge simplification, you just need to feed all that input data with all the answers into an algorithm big enough, and that's where the computing part comes in, as in enough processors and algorithm that is big enough, and there's a lot of research in trying to make these things bigger so it can do more complex things. You feed that into that information into an algorithm big enough, and you can get driverless cars out of that. And one of the reasons why I'm positive is because I've met with companies that do oil and gas, there's one particular in Perth, which the name escapes me, but essentially what they did about two or three years ago is that they have these big natural gas plants. They installed about 20,000 sensors across the plant to measure everything and anything that you could think of, and they streamed that real time onto the cloud. And then what they did is that they created optimization algorithms to say, according to all the data that we're seeing, weather, pressures, etc. for right now, the algorithm says, this is the best way to manage the plant in order to get the highest level of output. They did that. And when they told me about it, I was like, great. So your plants are now killing it. And then they said, well, now it comes to the human side. How do you deploy that? But essentially, they created all this optimization, and then I was like, great, problem solved. And they said, no, now it's about how do we deploy it. What they chose to do, instead of telling you how to do your job as a plant operator, instead of doing that, they literally created this system that says, hey, you were doing this exact shift two weeks ago, and you were 5% more optimal. You were 5% more efficient two weeks ago. Would you like to know how you did it? And then you go, yes. They go, oh, you were doing these two things differently. Adjust this one, lower that one. So you go and do it. And they did that for like nine months, maybe longer. And then people were like, every time, yeah, yeah, I want to know. I want to be the best version of myself. And that motivated people. Then once everyone was comfortable with that, they started comparing and benchmarking you versus others doing the same shift. And it's like, well, Gaurav did this and he killed it. He only did three things different to you. Would you like to know how, what he did? Yeah, I want to learn from him. So how do you present the information? How do you get people to go on that journey? And then doing that with the edging closer to say, this is the best thing that you can do now. But by that point, people have a positive perception of it. And then obviously, eventually, they will be going to a fully autonomous, but then that's down the road. One of the reasons why I'm positive on the driverless cars is because of examples like that. Essentially, 20,000 sensors, one huge natural gas plant, everything's being crunched and optimized in real time, fed back to the operator. I'm like, great, with enough examples, driverless cars can do the same. Love it. So the comment there is, that's all well and good in predictable environments. What happens in unpredictable environments? I completely agree that there is a type of problem that I like to call a closed loop. And then there's an open loop where things will come in that you don't expect. And definitely uh, resources like mining, they're um, physical materials. If you're trying to predict when a truck is going to break down, those types of things 
it's a closed loop problem and you can predict with extremely high levels of accuracy. Whenever there's weather, people, people's preferences, that has a huge element that can't be predicted. And for that, one of the big penalties that we pay when we study those is that the accuracy of our models is significantly lower than in closed loop problems. And in that case, you need lots and lots of examples of the things that happen very rarely. And as we were saying, seeing before, is that the machine will only be able to make good decisions or decide within the range of things that it has seen. So as long as there's things outside of that, then it makes it tough. And that's where in the driver's side cars, there's, for example, the trolley problem that a car can't stop and it can run over five people or one person. And what does the machine choose to do? And it's like, okay, well, yes, great. Definitely there will be those cases. Essentially, how many of them are there? What's the likelihood? And you sort of start to get to like ethical questions. And, and this is where it gets really complex. The way the companies are tackling it at the moment is is A, like Tesla getting heaps of data from essentially millions of miles every year are being, or on how people drive, that's being fed to Tesla at the moment. What other companies are doing, I'm sure Tesla's doing it as well, but uh, what other companies are doing is getting the algorithms to learn how people drive in simulations literally in a computer game. And what they can do in the computer game is generate every single scenario that they want as many times as they need. That's the power of the simulation here. The algorithm can learn from that. And you get to choose whether it's the right answer or the wrong answer. And this is where we essentially go back to the ethics. So it's definitely like a, a big interdependent play here. Yes, sir? Yeah, well, really like great discussion. I just wanted to also, like, while you're here, I'm conscious of the time. We have the room booked up until past 12.30, so that's not a problem. Whatever anyone else wants to do here, it's up to them. If you've got, like, have you got any examples that you can go over in terms of sort of a direct application, in terms of daily sort of stuff? I know you've been stuck on this, like, for a while. Yeah. It's been really good, so I'm really enjoying it, but I'm just wondering if people came here in this, maybe to look at some sort of application to their work and stuff, or maybe there is a part two. It's up to you. So I sort of yeah, exactly. So the interesting thing here is that what I wanted to do is A, to get you thinking about how you can apply this in your world, understand what are the gotchas, the problems, things that are common pitfalls, and how to think about this thing, which is most of what we've been covering as a result of this slide, kind of. In terms of specific examples, I've got tons. I don't know exactly how relevant they would be for you. But if there's uh, specific questions that people have, very happy to go through them. Otherwise, I do think that we can do a part two because I think... Okay, so this was in the how do we apply it here, right? Which is how do we get started? Uh, so there's obviously a bunch of stuff before. What I can highly, highly, highly recommend is to start with R, which is a programming language for statistics. It's weird that it's literally just one letter, but that's because statisticians suck at naming things. Yeah, well, it's embarrassing. Its predecessor, so R was built off a previous programming language that was called S. I know, it's uh, very imaginative. So R is approved that forward as one of the software that you can get. And R is just a programming language, which is mostly backend. It has a just a text interface, but you can get a graphical user interface for the software, which is called R Studio. And it's also in the approved list for Ford, which is great. And then that gets you set up with the tools and the programming environment. Then within R, so R is built for statisticians, which means that from a programming perspective, it has very low barriers to entry and it's very powerful. It also has over 10,000 different libraries. So if you have a problem that you're trying to solve, 
most likely somebody has solved it before and it's sitting in a library and you can find that by googling. Some of the best libraries that I know to get started and the names are sort of weird because they always try to find names that are unique and easy to google. So the first one is Rattle which is a user interface for machine learning and that's the one that we see here. So you literally you fire up R, you go library after you install the library rattle you go library brackets rattle enter and then you go type rattle enter and you get this and this user interface allows you to create machine learning models through the user interface and it has tabs for each of the most important steps in creating a machine learning model so you input the data look at this partition 70 15 15 it goes to what we were talking about before right by default it does that it understands what the data is it gives you how many values of each one and then you choose is this an input or is it my target that i'm trying to predict and then you can exclude ignore etc other fields you run that with this execute go to the next one do some exploration some charts test it transform it etc you can model it create some predictive models tells you the accuracy you can get decision trees like we saw before random forest neural networks etc and then one of my favorite things is that in this log tab it writes the code for you so literally you can input a data set go execute and they go how do i input a data set in r go to log and it'll tell you it's like recording a macro it'll do a couple extra things like what it does it recognizes whether the data is a number or a category and it treats those it labels those differently to use them differently in the model but you'll learn a bunch from it. It's all free software. The second library is this ggraptor, and that's a data visualization tool for R, and it's fantastic. You literally input your spreadsheet or wherever your data from it is in, and then you can start to put different X and Y axes and create different clusters and create separate the data say by day of the week and then by month and you create lots of little charts. You can do that literally all with this menu. It also creates the code for you. And it teaches you what is called in data science the grammar of graphics, which is a way to describe visualizations that is bigger than R. It's across all the main data science programming languages. And when you go to Python or Spark or whatever you want to do it in, you can do visualizations using this grammar of graphics. You can start to learn that with literally choosing from these menus and it shows you the options for it. The next one is Swirl. Swirl is a package that teaches you R in R. It's kind of like Inception. So when you run Swirl, it gives you something like this. And it says, hey, these are the lessons that I have. What would you like to do? And you go, hey, I want to learn basics of programming in R. And it goes, great, here's how you start. And you get a little prompt like this. And then it says, here's how you, a little bit of code. It gives you a little problem. You solve it and it tells you you did well, or this is what you can do better. It has regression models. It actually has now like 20 or 30 different modules that you can pick from and you're just sitting there typing away and it's like literally like having a tutor right there it's fantastic the other one is shiny with shiny you can create dashboards like this which then you can share around they're all interactive dashboards shiny has a little bit more programming that it needs but for example tableau is a great option if you guys can get that but it's it's fantastic we like for the first year or so at ANZ, we used all Shiny dashboards and it was fantastic. And then in terms of courses where you can learn this stuff online in Coursera, there's these two first ones. One of them is the John Hopkins Data Science Specialization. That's a set of 10 online courses that are sort of put one module after the other. About four hours a week, four to six hours a week. Each module takes about a month. 
So literally in 10 months, you go through all the basics and foundations of data science from preparing data, visualizing, statistics, making machine learning, and at the end you do a, a project. That's a great foundation. And if you're on the next level up and you or you want to get straight into machine learning, the best course is literally called Machine Learning by Andrew NG. That's in Coursera as well. Andrew NG is a legend of the industry. He's doing a lot of work in deep learning. He was head of AI at Google, then went and did, was head of AI at Baidu, and um, now started his own company <laughs> doing deep learning. And part of it is teaching. So he has a lot of courses on deep learning, which will come after that. But that one teaches you the foundations of machine learning with a little bit of the math in a really easy to digest manner. One of the examples that he keeps coming back to is how do you decide when to buy a house? and says, okay, well, let's say we want to predict price. What things do you look for in a house when you're trying to predict the price? So then you can see whether it's a fair price or not. And it goes, well, you look at the number of bedrooms, the number of bathrooms, and he goes, great, let's put these as columns. And you sort of build on that over time. So it's a really easy way. And then the other one is, the thing about these two is that essentially you're kind of on your own. You're going through it on your own pace. You have the videos and there's forums that you can ask questions, but there's kind of nobody with you. There's this other company called Springboard. They give you a mentor or which with who you have a weekly call to go through assignments and any issues. With Springboard, they have three courses on data science. They have a business analytics, which is using Excel, SQL, which is a language of databases, and Tableau for visualizations. Then they have an intro to data science using R, and they have an intermediate data science, which uses Python. And they're all assignment or business case-led courses. So you do you get a little bit of theory and then the business case where you have to solve a problem. They're really good. That link, which is just bit.ly, DF for Data Futurology dash SB for Springboard that gives you $250 off for the courses. You can use that. The other provider that gives you a, a mentor, which is obviously something I really like and, and important to a lot of people, I just thought of it actually, is um, Udacity. And Udacity has specializations, kind of like that one, like John Hopkins, specializations, which they call nano degrees. And there are a series of modules or courses put together with a mentor as well. And they have courses on interaction to data science and machine learning and other good ones. That's for the online part. And then for the face-to-face, -face, I highly, highly, highly recommend Press which I know is one of the companies that you guys are in discussions with. I've done almost every course that Prescient offers. It's taught by Eugene Dubosarski, who is literally a 20-year-old veteran in the industry and just an absolute master, a gun, uh, really kind. Anyway, fantastic, fantastic courses. They're all like two-day courses. He does it in-house. He also has privately run courses, as in like anyone can go to those. He's really good. And then he has introductory level courses where he literally uses Rattle to build machine learning models. And he uses ggraptor, which actually is an R library that he wrote. Like he did developed ggraptor and he uses it in his course to say i'm going to teach you on how to visualize things so in terms of learning that's definitely what i recommend besides that i was just going to say i've set up until like sometime mid next year at least like a weekly meeting uh, at the moment two hours long and i've set it aside to talk about anything data science or training for the beginning people getting up to speed i think we are just going to focus on training so we just like i'm newish to r i do it at school i'm doing a master of data science and so we'll go through it together and then we'll learn together so and if we need sort of any support i'm sure we can sort of figure that out maybe we'll consult some of the services that Felipe has mentioned but um yeah i passed out a document or oh, sorry a piece of paper earlier if you could put your name on it if you're interested in being invited for the weekly meeting and then i mean you could just meet up in the ve center and Take it from there. If we need more time, maybe we'll start more time. 
That's really good because then you can go through the, the courses together and help each other out. And as you said, like you can get uh, external help when you need it. And the only other thing is what I mentioned at the beginning. I started this podcast. It's a free resource. You can download it on your phone, listen to it when you're uh, driving or commuting or waiting around. We interview chief data officers, chief data scientists, general managers of data science. It's not a technical discussion. Literally what we talk about is what are the mistakes and lessons learned? How do they get to where they are? And also things like what makes a great data scientist? What are the skills required? How do you become a leader in data science? How should I grow my team, get the skills started? What's a good data strategy? What are interesting applications that other people should be considering in their industry based on what these leaders are doing on their side? It's on, I think about 12 or 13 different podcasting apps. So definitely the one on iPhone, iTunes, it's on there. This is the Google Podcast. It's on Spotify. It's on um, Podbean and Pocket Casts and almost every podcasting app that I've been able to find. If you use a different one and you can't find the podcast, it's called Data Futurology. If you can't find it on the app that you use, uh, send me a message on LinkedIn or an email and I'll add it there. And the main focus is data from a human lens. So it's about the stuff that we're talking about today in terms of it's not a deep dive on algorithms and what's the maths behind it. It's saying like, what is a human's journey to get to become a head of data science? What mistakes did they make? What can they teach or impart other people? And then we get into some of these questions around how do you do data science well where you are? So definitely look it up, Data Futurology. That's, well, the, my email is just Felipe at datafuturology.com. I should change the color of that. But definitely uh, give it a listen and I'd love to know what you think of it. That's all. Thank you. I wanted to tell you about the RMIT Online Masters of Data Science Strategy and Leadership. I was one of the industry advisors for this program. It's an online master's program and it covers both data science strategy and leadership and it has also a technical component. Highly, highly recommended for people wanting to get ahead with the program. You can gain this advanced strategic leadership and data science capabilities required to influence executive leadership teams and deliver organization-wide solutions. For more information, visit online.rmit.edu. I wanted to tell you about We Are Rubik's, one of Australia's leading pure data consulting companies delivering project outcomes for some of the world's leading brands. Growing rapidly and with offices in Melbourne, Sydney and the US, Rubik's are as serious about analytics as they are about their pinball. True story, they have like 10 pinball machines in their Melbourne head office. If you're interested in joining a passionate and vibrant team who make work fun, Head to wearerubix.com and get in touch today. That's wearerubix, all one word, wearerubix.com and get in touch today. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn or Instagram as datafuturology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.